Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 30th, 2021. As always, thank you for checking out Foreign Exchanges, the podcast. Uh, if you're new to Foreign Exchanges and you like this interview, please check out the newsletter, fx.substack.com. Uh, consider signing up for our free email list. Uh, you'll get uh, three world news roundups a week, plus uh, more podcasts like this with interviews, plus uh, pieces from our growing stable of columnists and contributors, uh, all delivered right to your email inbox. Uh, so I hope you do that. I hope you check it out. Um, and uh, again, thanks for checking out the podcast. For those of you who are regulars, uh, welcome back. <laughs> so glad to have you, as always. Uh, this week, uh, I'm being joined. I'm very pleased to welcome, actually, for his first time uh, on the show, uh, I'm being joined by Nathaniel Powell. Uh, Nathaniel is a historian whose research focuses on post-colonial Franco-African relations, which is a very thorny issue, uh, particularly across Africa, but also he, he doesn't do Lebanon, but, but uh, it extends to other French colonies too. Later in the interview, you will hear Nathaniel refer to being a French uh, colony as being in uh, the Hotel California. You can Check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Uh, you can declare independence, but you never really get out of the web of, uh, of French colonial influence. Uh, so uh, that's his area of focus. Uh, specifically, uh, he deals with Chad, and he's got a book uh, that just came out a little bit earlier this year called France's Wars in Chad, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa. Which makes him the perfect guest uh, to talk about recent events in the Sahel. Uh, specifically, as many of you undoubtedly know, uh, the longtime president of Chad, Idris Deby, uh, was killed last week um, in somewhat murky circumstances. The official story is he uh, headed to the front line of a battle between his military uh, and a rebel group called the Front for Change and Concord in Chad. Chad, a French acronym F-A-C-T, or FACT, uh, and uh, during some kind of exchange of fire, uh, Debbie was shot uh, and died of his wounds before he could be airlifted uh, back to the Chadian capital uh, in Jamina uh, for medical treatment. So that's the official story. There's a lot of details missing, obviously, uh, and uh, as Nathaniel will get into a little bit in the interview, there's a lot of rumors going around about things maybe you know the the official story is not the full story there's nothing i mean there's no evidence to support any of that stuff uh but the lack of detail has sort of spawned a lot of uh controversies uh or questions let's say about what really happened since Debbie's death, uh, the Chadian military has undertaken uh, a coup, really, uh, effectively a coup. Uh, I don't think there's any other word for it, although uh, very few people seem to be willing to use that word. Uh, it has suspended constitutional order. It's taken over control of the government. It's implemented a transitional council that is supposed to oversee uh, the country through uh, a new election and a restoration of constitutional order in 18 months. Uh, now, uh, that decision, uh, despite, 
it being a coup and a suspension of constitutional order has been welcomed by the French government and the United States government, both of whom uh, value stability in Africa far more, especially in West Africa and across the Sahel, far more than they value things that they claim to care about, like democracy and human rights. Uh, that said, uh, the French government has started to push back a little bit on this military government, they've uh, it seems they've suggested that maybe uh, the the Chadians might want to put a little civilian window dressing on things, and so they've appointed a civilian prime minister. Uh, earlier this week, there was a protest uh, in a couple of cities, a couple of Chad's major cities, uh, and Jamina, for example, uh, in which I think five or six people, maybe as many as nine people, were killed, uh, protesting against the the you know sort of uh, imposition of a military government and the fact that the military government uh, just so happens to be run by Idris Deby's son, uh, Mohammed Deby. Uh, so there's a kind of whiff of monarchical succession happening here as well that I think people are opposed to. Uh, that outbreak of violence uh, really sparked a bit of a turnaround uh, on the part of the French government, which quickly came out with a statement saying, uh, you know, this this transitional period really needs to be civilian-led. It shouldn't be managed by the military. Basically, I think asking for a little more window dressing than they'd already gotten. Uh, so we're going to talk with uh, Nathaniel about all this. He's going to give us sort of the history of uh, Idris Deby, the quickie uh, life story of Idris Deby, uh, who was president of Chad for 30 years and had just been reelected. Uh, you can sort of put that in air quotes because uh, the, the elections are not, you know, Chadian elections are not exactly the most legitimate uh, exercises of democratic power uh, in the world. Uh, but it was just reelected and, and then died, you know, obviously suddenly in, in apparently in battle. Um, we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about FACT, the rebel group that uh, apparently killed him, uh, and a little bit about their background. We'll talk about what's what's happened since then, the coup uh, and the reactions from around the world. And then we'll uh, sort of close out with uh, some discussion of the implications uh, of what comes next uh, for Chad and for the wider Sahel region. The Chadian military in particular has sort of been the backbone of several multinational uh, operations, military operations to counter uh, particularly jihadist violence. They're very active in the Lake Chad region against Boko Haram and the Islamic State's West Africa province. They're very active in uh, the UN's peacekeeping force in Mali. And they're also sort of the, the backbone uh, of the G5 Sahel force, which is something we've talked about with Alex Thurston on this program in the past. Uh, it's a multinational force, uh, Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger and Chad, uh, whose purpose is to sort of uh, mostly, uh, as Nathaniel says, there's supposed to be an economic uh, component to this group, but really it's almost entirely military, uh, taking on, again, jihadist groups, uh, you know, JNIM, uh, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Mali, uh, the Islamic State's affiliate in sort of West Niger and, and uh, Burkina Faso. They're supposed to be dealing with those uh, threats. And again, Chad has, has been, the Chadian military has been sort of the backbone of that operation. Uh, there are some concerns that if Chad destabilizes internally, those forces that are currently tasked to, to fight in these multinational uh, coalition efforts are going to be pulled back. 
which could have serious repercussions uh, for regional security. So we're going to talk about all of that, and uh, Nathaniel will tell us a little bit about his book at the end. Uh, and um, that's uh, that'll be this week's show. So I've given you, a, uh, I think, a more thorough preview than you probably needed, uh, but uh, so as not to waste any more time, I'm going to stop here, and I'll get Nathaniel on the line. Okay, as promised, I am being joined by Nathaniel Powell. Uh, Nathaniel is a historian whose work focuses on the history of post-colonial Franco-African relations. He's a researcher at the Center for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University, uh, and he's got a book, uh, which is very relevant to today's topic, uh, France's Wars in Chad, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa, uh, that was published just earlier this year, so that's hot off the presses, uh, and you can check that out. I'll have a link to, to find it in the show description. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you for coming on the program. It's great to have you to talk about this. Uh, thanks, Derek. It's, uh, it's fun to be here. Uh, so, uh, all right, so the shocking news uh, of last week uh, was the sudden death of Chadian president, or then Chadian president, I guess, uh, Idris Deby. Uh, why don't we start, uh, for people who aren't familiar with who, uh, I was, was going to say who he is, but who he was, uh, why don't we start with uh, some of the background and, and the, the origin story, let's say, of Idris Deby uh, and, you know, how he came to be president of Chad uh, for 30 years, uh, you know, had just been reelected to yet another term. Uh, I, I guess you could put reelected in yeah, quotes. Yeah, I was going to say that. That election um, is... <laughs> Open, yeah, open question about you, how elected you could, he was. You can, yeah, you can, you can sort of uh, fill in the blanks there. But okay, so um, you know how he came to be president and and what his reign has been like over these uh, past thirty years, uh, and then we'll uh, kind of get into the the more recent events. Okay, so uh, Debbie uh, obviously has bit well was as you said <laughs> president of Chad until <laughs> until last week. Um, he was. Uh, he started off as a as a soldier. He started off as a uh, as attached to this this guy named Hissin Habre, who uh, was Chad's president uh, dictator uh, from 1982 until 1990, uh, and before then he had been uh, uh, alternatively in Ch the various Chadian governments and also opposed to various Chadian governments and um, and also opposed to Libyan military occupation that, that had occurred in Chad in 1981. So. Uh, Debbie kind of got his military chops fighting with, with Habre. And Habre is really important um, for a lot of reasons. One is uh, during the time he was president from 1982 to 1990, he was strongly supported by, uh, by the American government, um, co both covertly and overtly, which included um, supplies of weapons, uh, financing, uh, a lot of intelligence cooperation uh, and training. And this helped Debbie uh, win a series of conflicts with Libya and Libyan-backed rebels in northern Chad uh, during a time which is often referred to among kind of American NATSEC types as uh, the Toyota Wars. And I haven't heard too many French speakers refer to these as the Toyota Wars or Chadians refer to these as the Toyota Wars, but um, the, the kind of uh, image that you get when you hear about these conflicts or think about these conflicts is uh, a bunch of guys kind of on, on technicals with, uh, you know, uh, pickup trucks with, you know, various mounted kinds of uh, you know, weapons, uh, charging each other and, and shooting each other. And it's kind of evoked all these kind of fantasies about desert warfare and um, kind of blitzkrieg in the desert. And, and all this, this war kind of culminated with uh, an attack 
on a military, Libyan military base called the Wadi Dun in uh, 1987. And the military base was commanded by a guy named Khalifa Haftar, uh, who would later appear um, in, a, in a sequel. Familiar name. Yeah. And yeah, I know. It's a, it's a strange, strange story. Um, so, <laughs> and his major success, I mean, Haftar was a terrible leader, <laughs> terrible military commander. Um, the the Chadni commander, Hassan Jumus, uh, just overwhelmed the base uh, and, and the, the Libyan military fell apart. It wasn't only Haftar's fault, but um, there, there's uh, rumors that he was asleep in his command post when the attack happened and some other things. But in any case, he was captured, brought back to uh, N'Djamena, the capital of Chad, and he was recruited. He wasn't going to go back to, to Libya uh, because um, I'm not sure Gaddafi would have treated him particularly well. And, and Gaddafi made him a scapegoat for his massive military defeat against against a Chadian army, which was not seen as particularly um, formidable. So uh, it's a huge kind of loss of prestige for Gaddafi. So the military, his military commander, he skipped town. So he uh, was recruited by the CIA to lead a, a force of dissident Libyans who were mostly just recruited from prisoners the Chadian army had taken um, as kind of a contra force, a 1980-style Reagan-style uh, contra force, which would um, be um, well supported by the CIA and the Americans and also the Chadian government and would hopefully be the vanguard of some kind of anti-Gaddafi revolution. It never got off the ground. Uh, go with what you it, know. The death squad. Yeah, that's, yeah go, go. <laughs> Do what exactly. you know. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of follows an old playbook. Um, the, the problem was that um, the Americans and, and Hissin Habri, who was the Chadian president, never consulted the French about this. And this is where things get, get a bit dicey. So um, Habre had um, kind of two military commanders who were very prominent. One was Hassan Jamus, who defeated Khalifa Haftar, and the other was Idris Debi, who used to be his head of uh, his chief of staff of his military. And uh, Habre started to get, uh, Habre was known for being like incredibly brutal. Um, he, uh, Human Rights Watch uh, discovered the archive of his intelligence service, which was just littered on the floor of a building in the 1990s. Uh, and they, they compiled kind of this um, kind of uh, clear sort of record of, of his time and power. And, and uh, they estimate, as well as a later Chadian kind of investigative, investigative commission in the 1990s, estimated that something like 40,000 people were probably uh, murdered uh, during his rule. And a similar number of people were imprisoned and tortured. So he has a, a really negative reputation as being somebody who was a, a kind of a, a, you know, incredibly brutal person. Um, and he's just been, I mean, in 2016 or 2017, he was actually the first African head of state to be indicted for, for, for crimes, for war crimes. I actually think it was war crimes. I think it was, he was indicted for something really bad. <laughs> and now he's, now he's, you know, he's convicted, he was convicted and uh, now he's, he's serving a life, a life sentence in Senegal, uh, which is, you know, a night is kind of a, a silver lining to the cloud of the story of the 1980s. It's actually just as it was in the end sort of served. Although none of his victims were ever given, uh, you know, monetary compensation, which was part of the judgment, partly because Habre either spent all the money he took with him, you know, or, or who knows where it is. Um, in any case, Habre was uh, so Habre started to get really paranoid about his his close kind of associates, one of whom was Idris Deby, and uh, they he kind of uh, was warned that Habre was going to arrest him, so he has, he skipped town. He's, he's he, in 1989 he went into uh, into Sudan hotly pursued by Chadian army forces uh, and his uh, co kind of coup conspirator or not conspirator, Hassan Jamus, who used to be also the, he's the one who defeated Haftar, was actually attacked in Sudan, kidnapped, brought back to Chad and executed. Um, now, this is where the French get involved because the French, uh, Chad is a former French colony and 
the my book covers is a series of French military interventions in Chad in the 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s, which uh, aim to protect or support a kind of a series of different Chadian governments or, or military regimes against um, either internal rebellions or Libyan sponsored uh, um, rebellions or, or attacks. And the French were always very concerned that, uh, or, or worried that anybody other than France could exercise influence or control over Chad. Uh, so one, when it's like once a out, French colony, always a French colony, basically, well, you never get out. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's, it's, it is a bit of a, you know, it is a Hotel California kind of thing. You can decolonize <laughs> and check out, but you can never leave. Right. I mean, that's, um, to, to be fair, to be fair, uh, so, some did kind of leave. Guinea uh, or, or Congo Brazzaville, there was some some departure, although came back too. So uh, I guess they only went to the, you know, the sidewalk outside the hotel doors. But the, the thing is, like in, in Chad, there's like, the, the French have, I mean, it's hard to explain like in a, in a kind of succinct way, but basically the French have not really had clear economic interests in Chad. In fact, Chad, Chad is, remains a very poor country. And only in the early 2000s was oil, did oil become a major export? And the companies exploiting Chinese oil are not American or American and Chinese, or sorry, not French, they're American and Chinese. Um, but the French involvement in Chad has, has been um, kind of justified or rationalized for different reasons over time. Uh, and the main, the main reason why they've been involved is because Chad has had a series of civil wars and France felt compelled to uh, protect or defend whatever political order existed in Chad, because if that order was overthrown or destabilized in these conflicts, that would undermine French credibility as a protector to its other close African allies. Um, and also there were fears that if Chad were to collapse, this would also spread instability to France's other allies, their former colonies like Cameroon, uh, Central African Republic, Niger, uh, and, and perhaps further afield. So Chad is always seen as kind of a place where France had to kind of hold the, hold the door closed against uh, you know, any and all efforts to destabilize France's uh, back, African backyard. And the French term for that is Plate Calais, which is um, like their own kind of protected field of influence. Uh, and they were, they were concerned about all, all sorts of outsiders. This goes back to the story I was telling earlier. So they were obviously concerned about the you know, communism and the Soviets and their penetration of their sphere of influence and control. Uh, they're also concerned about the Americans. Uh, they're always worried, uh, oftentimes excessively, about American efforts to undermine their control over their former colonies or their influence in the former colonies. And it's funny if you compare uh, American discussions of these places and French discussions of these places in the 1960s, 1970s, and 80s, uh, the French are, are wildly concerned about the American influence. The Americans are like, where's this place? Um, <laughs> there's this, like, this massive mismatch. It, it mismatch. It's, um, like, the most tragic element of this, or tragic example of this is Rwanda. I mean, one of the main reasons for French intervention in Rwanda, which saved the regime that eventually degenerated into a genocide, was their fear that the RPF invasion led by Paul Kagame was uh, a front for the Anglo-Saxons that were trying to undermine French influence. And Rwanda wasn't even a, a former French colony, but they spoke French and therefore had to be protected. Um, Chad is a bit like that in the sense that uh, in this case, there's the Libyans that were threatening French uh, influence and therefore France's other allies. But in the end of the, 19, end of the 1990s, when the Chadian army defeated the, defeated the Libyans, uh, led by Hassan Jamus and Idris Dabi, defeated the Libyans uh, and then Debbie skipped town and Haftar was now uh, installed next to Jamina at a military base uh, helped by the Americans. Um, the French were really uh, upset about this. 
Uh, and the main thing they were said about was that the Americans were supporting this um, Contra group in Chad to destabilize Libya uh, in a conflict that the French didn't want any part of. They wanted the Libyans out of Chad, but they didn't want to get rid of Gaddafi. They weren't particularly interested in, uh, in American efforts to kind of dislodge Gaddafi or destabilize Libya. So uh, they basically turned on Habre. They turned on the guy they were ostensibly there to protect. And then when Debbie launched a rebellion in eastern Chad, or in, in uh, western Sudan, Darfur, into eastern Chad, the French army just opened up the gates and let him, let him right through. Uh, they were all, he was also supported by French intelligence services and, uh, interestingly enough, Libyan intelligence services. So he had support from the French and the Libyans to dislodge Habre. He was kind of America's man in Chad. And he became, uh, you know, he was, well, Habre was overthrown. He fled to Senegal. And then Debbie was the new leader, and, uh, thanks to France and, and to some extent to Libya. Um, and this began a, a beautiful 30-year uh, relationship, uh, which ended very tragically in the battlefield. Um, last week. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> um, actually, the, the relationship is a bit more a seesaw than, than that. The, um, the, so the French kind of had the, the Americans out of Chad, they had Debbie. The problem was the 1990s was a time in which the Cold War was over, so there were, uh, there were fewer ways to justify openly supporting kind of authoritarian regimes. Uh, and also, you have um, kind of the end of the Mitterrand regime in France, the Mitterrand government, sorry, in France, and uh, a kind of a, a reduction of French ex defense expenditures, an idea that uh, the French don't need to be as militarily present in Africa as before. And there's a French push for their African clients to um, at least formally democratize and open up the field to, um, to, to, to other political parties and have real elections that are actually contested and, um, you know, are not entirely rigged. Uh, and part of this was also the idea that, that you know, the best way to keep France's kind of foothold in its former colonies was to um, have the veneer of, of free and fair elections. And that ultimately anybody who wins these elections will still go to France cap in hand for development assistance, uh, security aid or whatever else. Uh, and that, you know, ultimately you don't need these old dinosaurs of the 60s there, somebody else can be in power and the structural relationships gonna remain the same. Um, and Debbie did this, Debbie played the game in the 1990s, he had this national, national conference, there were elections, which he probably won legitimately in 1996. Um, it's unclear, but he probably did. Um, and uh, then uh, he just got more authoritarian. That's kind of, <laughs> <it along. laughs> um, and I guess to make a long story short, uh, when he, he ran for re-election in, um, uh, for for uh, sorry for so you tried to run for third term in, in two thousand four or two thousand five, my dates mixed up. Uh, this actually generated lots of, of opposition within Chad. It said okay, constitutionally you can't do this. He made a very kind of uh, obscure legal argument that since the constitution had impl implemented after he took power, that his first term didn't really count as a first term, therefore he could you know stay on. Um, anyway, this led to um, some rebellions, major uh, armed rebellions against Debbie. And, and another thing I should mention about Chad is that Chad. Um, because of the way it's been governed by a series of military regimes since the mid-1970s, uh, the space for kind of um, non-violent opposition and protest to whatever government's in place is, has been severely restricted. Um, and that's made it, that's made a situation in which the only kind of way to change government or, or to try to get the government to respond to you is through, is through armed rebellion. Um, and that's because Debbie 
has done a magnificent job of kind of dividing and atomizing whatever opposition forces have been um, like non non military or non armed opposition forces have been kind of confronting him, uh, especially through co-optation. Like lots of political leaders have been offered posts in government. Um, they're allowed to run against them in the presidential elections, but um, and understanding they won't get more than four or five percent of the vote. <laughs> presidential um, elections, yeah. Well, well, of course, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, in any case, like this, so this is so. There's a major event in 2006, which actually got to Jammu, it got to the capital, and and it looked very briefly like Debbie was going to be overthrown militarily. Um, there was another rebellion, got to the capital, big fighting in the capital. The French army provided some intelligence support to Debbie. They offered to exfiltrate him to basically ensure that he wouldn't die. Uh, it was kind of this service they provide to African heads of state that were on the verge of, um, uh, you know, getting kicked out. Um, so they, but he said, no, I'm going to fight. And, and the one thing about Debbie, he, he was a fighter. He was, he was a, he was a soldier, um, through and through and somebody who was, was quite a talented soldier in a lot of ways. Uh, and he managed to actually at the gates of his presidential palace to, to fight off this rebel group. Uh, and the French may provide some other assistance, uh, in the form of, uh, um, ammunition supplies and, uh, a refuge on the French military base so that Chinese forces could regroup and then launch counterattacks. But um, anyway, Debbie won. The problem was the rebellion repeated itself. Like, I mean, it didn't actually, it wasn't decisive to defeat the rebellion. So they came back in 2008 and also got to Jamina again. Uh, and uh, this time the French intervened a bit more directly. They, they, um, there were some, not airstrikes, but uh, uh, French aircraft would uh, fire warning shots at rebel columns. They shared lots of intelligence about troop positions with, with Debbie. Uh, there was some uh, ground combat around the French military base. French were providing fire support to um, Chadian army forces. The defense of Jamina was uh, helped by French military planners uh, embedded in, in um, Debbie's presidential palace. So the French played a more active role in, in, in that case. Um, and the reason for this is that France has consistently seen Debbie as kind of a bulwark against any kind of broader instability. So the mid 2000s is the time you see the genocide happening in Darfur. Uh, and there's a real fear that that violence could spill over. Um, so the French are telling the Americans who are wondering what the hell's going on. Uh, you know, if Debbie collapses, it's gonna be like a new Somalia in Central Africa. We can't have this. Um, so we need to protect Debbie and make sure he doesn't fall. And that's what they do. He sees this like again. You hear the same argument going back to the 1960s: stability or chaos. And you know, whatever you think of the guy in place, uh, he's providing stability. And you know, maybe he's a bit. You know, maybe he kills some people. He <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, he's, you know, he killed some folks. You know, you can't. You know, folks. you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. And you know, our <laughs> omelet is stability in Central Africa. So that's um, that's the French omelet, and it's a very tasty one. Uh, in Paris, anyway, and they basically supported Debbie, you know, militarily up in, up to the mid 2000s. And, and what this allowed Debbie to do actually was to break the terms of an agreement he had with the World Bank, uh, which was that shedding oil revenue from the early 2000s, a certain percentage of that would be reinvested into um, infrastructure like uh, hospitals, uh, roads in rural areas, uh, electricity, rural electrification, um, uh, schools, that kind of thing. And for this couple of years, it seemed like they were kind of they were, they were kind of doing that, and you saw a big boom in construction in Jamina and stuff like that. I mean, obviously padding you know the, the wallets of of, of his um, of his uh, more immediate political constituency, but everything else. But some of this money was finding its way to um, to, to the population. 
Now, after the first rebel attack on Jamina in 2006, he um, broke the agreement and he started spending lots of the oil money on weapons and kind of remilitarizing uh, uh, his um, kind of security establishment, or that's making any sense, uh, to increase the rate of militarization in the, in the country. Sure. Um, because in the 1990s, he'd been reducing the size of the army and he kind of stopped that process. So he, he bought lots of weapons, um, some from France, some from Russia, some from uh, um, shady arms dealers, um, and uh, beefed up his presidential guard, which several years later would fall under the command of his son, uh, Mohammed uh, Nabi No, who's now the- uh, Yes, we'll be, we'll be getting to him. We'll be right. talking about him, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and this this unit was you know is is partly supplied by the French. Part, uh, it's, it's the best paid part of the, uh, the Chadian army, probably the the most effective. Um, and they're strongly based uh, among um, Debbie's uh, Bidayat clan of his of his of the Zagawa ethnic group in northeastern Chad, which is a very small minority of the population. Um, so it's a presidential presidential guard is also something of an ethnic militia, although it's it's not entirely based on on, on Zagawa Bidayat. And uh, this kind of formed the bulwark, not just of the internal stability of the regime, but also allowed him to project power elsewhere, especially in the Central African Republic in the early 2010s. But uh, more kind of famously, when the French intervened in Mali in 2013, when uh, several jihadists and rebel movements took over northern Mali and started moving towards southern Mali, uh, the French were bolstered by uh, uh, several thousand Chadian soldiers as well. And the, the Chadian soldiers took the brunt of the casualties, as, as you can imagine, um, in the uh, in, in the reconquest of Mali. Uh, and even today, the Malian uh, or the peace, U.S. peacekeeping mission in Mali, MINUSMA, has a strong contingent of Chadian soldiers, varying between a thousand and fifteen hundred. Uh, so this kind of regional military presence, plus Chadian military um, involvement against Boko Haram in the late Chad region and in northern Nigeria and Cameroon, uh, have made Chad kind of a regional military power. And this is since the early 2010s. Uh, so the French have seen, consistently seen uh, Debbie as somebody who can, there's a force multiplier, who, provo who can export, I've even used this word exporting security elsewhere or exporting stability. Uh, because uh, for example, Mali and Niger and especially Burkina Faso don't have the um, local cap military capacities necessarily to take on the recent um, kind of spread of, of, of jihadist groups in an effective way, whereas the Chadian units, which are better trained, better equipped, better paid, are seen as being more effective on the battlefield. Uh, and and very right. and the the G five force really has been. I mean, they're very like they're the backbone of that too. In addition to the yeah, UN absolutely. peacekeepers in Mali absolutely. and uh, fighting, you know, the Boko Haram fight or ISWAP, I guess at this point uh, in Lake Chad. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yes, the G5 are the, are the five Sahelian countries that are, are, are Mauritania, Mali, uh, Niger, Burkina Faso, and Chad, which uh, is supposed to it's supposed to be a, a forum for development, but it, it's second kind of um, <laughs> really it's, you know it's yeah, it's military it's, yeah it's, it's military. <laughs> I mean that, that was part that was part of the deal as well. I mean basically it's going to be a forum for development, but also a forum for military cooperation, and, and mainly it's military cooperation. Um, it, its effectiveness has been uh, you know pretty. Uh, well, it's, it's been varied. Uh, it, its headquarters came under, it was overrun or almost overrun by a jihadist attack in 2017 or 2018. So they had to move it, uh, which suggests that maybe it wasn't as effective as um, you know, they were hoping. <laughs> part of it's lack of funding. Uh, part of it's the, uh, like the fact that a lot of these uh, 
armies just don't have the physical capacities in terms of equipment and training and communications to actually coordinate in, in, in ways that might be effective across different national borders. Uh, and G5 is supposed to enhance those capacities, but the Ch Chadian contingent has always been seen to be kind of the most effective and the most reliable. Um, and most recently they deployed about 1,200 troops to what's called the, the three border region. So the, basically the area between Niger, Burkina Faso and Mali, which has seen a major uptick in jihadist violence. And Debbie's commitment to um, provide this service to the French and to his regional allies is seen as an absolutely critical component um, in Paris of their broader security strategy in the Sahel. So without that, they feel like they would be hobbled and, and perhaps um, fatally crippled in their efforts to, to counter regional jihadist groups. Um, so at the moment, well, not at the moment, a week ago, that was- Right, uh, as of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things have changed a little so, bit. Things have changed a little bit, uh, or maybe not, we'll find out. Um, that was the importance of Debbie's um, regime for, for France more, more broadly. So stability of Chad itself, so Chad itself wouldn't become a, a, a source of regional instability. He maintained that through his authoritarian kind of governance. And then the stability that he would export um, to, uh, to neighboring countries in the form of uh, Chadian, the Chadian military, which can combat different uh, jihadist groups. All right, so uh, before we you know, finally uh, come up to the uh, tragic end of Idris Debbie's life, um, what can you tell us about the uh, front for change and concord in Chad, uh, FACT uh, is the French, uh, the French uh, acronym, um, who are, have been engaged for a, a couple of weeks now since uh, the election uh, earlier this month uh, in an offensive in northern Chad, uh, and apparently... Uh, were responsible for for killing Debbie for inflicting the wounds uh, that he died from. Uh, what what do we know about this group and their kind of background? Right. So there's um, how do I put this? So they were so basically in 2011. Uh, sorry, my um my daughter's toy just got activated and it's going to make some funny noises. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, if it's that's not the weirdest thing that's ever happened on this podcast. So. <laughs> I suppose not. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah. So the the fact rebellion it uh, was it is in part a product of both Debbie's ability to alienate um, lots of Chadians, particularly uh, among people in northern Chad called the Tubu uh, and and the the Dazaga Tubu in particular in northern Chad. Uh, who also uh, live in, in Libya. And the combination of that kind of alienation of, of large groups of people and the civil war in Libya itself, which attract, uh, attracted and has attracted and will continues to attract lots of foreign interveners, but also regional armed groups who can, uh, especially from Chad, who can, uh, who have found sponsors or alliances or partnerships with different, uh, different Libyan factions, uh, or tried to carve out kind of spaces for themselves, especially in Southern Libya. And uh, the fact has most recently been aligned with uh, Khalifa Haftar's faction and uh, was, as far as I know, and again, like I don't have special, any special insight or information about the group. Um, so uh, what I'm telling you is basically just based on 
media reports I've read. But it was because of its alignment with Haftar, it meant that it had access to some pretty sophisticated weaponry. Uh, has had a fair amount of combat experience in Libya itself. So these guys are are probably to some extent anyway battle hardened with access to good equipment. And also there's been a lot of rumors, or actually it's not rumors because it's actually pretty well documented by the UN, of some kind of relationship between uh, the FACT and the Wagner Group, which is a Russian mercenary firm, which is often seen as being uh, a kind of an extension of, of kind of uh, Russian foreign policy uh, in Africa and elsewhere. So the extent to which they're, they're, they were equipped and trained by the Wagner Group as opposed to just getting you know, nice weapons from Haftar is an open question. Uh, but well, and Haftar is kind of a conduit for that too, I guess, right? Because Wagner's been helping, Wagner's yeah. been helping him as well. He Absolutely. he brings people together. He's a uniter. He's, he's, a, uni he's a uniter, not a divider. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think like it's the the Wagner dimension can can be read, and you see this a bit on Twitter. People saying, "Oh, you know, the factor value." And I think the, the French, to some extent, want to play this up. Um, that the fact rebellion is, you know, some kind of one one more illustration of Russia's effort to extend extend its tentacles uh, into, you know, into Africa, um, and uh, I think that's that that dimension is is massively overblown. Um, the the fact leadership itself has plenty of reasons to want to overthrow Debbie and uh, replace him with something with someone else, and I think it's. Um, so, so yeah, they may have been they may have been received some training from Wagner or some weapons from Wagner, but the Russian dimension I think is is not kind of a critical thing here. The Haftar dimension is in the sense that uh, this is can be viewed as a colossal foreign policy uh, screw up by France because France has fairly actively and nearly openly supported Haftar for the past couple of years, and. The fact that this Chadian contingent that was uh, in the coalition with Haftar decided to strike off on its own and uh, try to take out the pillar of France's security policy in Africa uh, was probably not uh, in the uh, you know in the playbooks of French officials when they decided that Haftar was a key to stability in Libya, and it's 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 kind of one more illustration of how you know these kind of stabilization policies can actually backfire pretty tremendously uh, if. You know, uh, well, if you play them too seriously. So, so yeah, so the factory building was associated with Haftar. They entered Chad on April 11th, which is when the Chadian elections were. Uh, and they probably saw an opportunity. Uh, and again, this is kind of speculative, so I maybe don't want to go too far. But they probably saw that opportunity for two reasons to, to invade then. And one is the controversy surrounding the election. Uh, it was really difficult for Debbie to um, claim that running for a sixth term was somehow legitimate. Uh, and there's been increasing uh, kind of social uh, movements targeting Debbie's rule and Debbie's uh, um, treatment of opposition figures and that sort of thing. So they're trying to capitalize on maybe some of Debbie's political weakness, both internally, but also, uh, also regionally, internationally, in the sense that he has a legitimacy problem. Uh, and the elections kind of helped to illustrate that and perhaps created enough internal political tension where that might be able, uh, where they might have been able to exploit that. Um, the other thing is that they may have calculated is that a lot of Debbie's best troops were deployed elsewhere, uh, either uh, in uh, Mali and Niger and Burkina Faso, 
to fight jihadists in, uh, in the border region or within MINUSMA, the um, uh, UN the UN mission in Mali, uh, or against Boko Haram in the like, Chad area. So it's possible they saw a military opportunity as well as a political one. Um, they may also have calculated that France wouldn't intervene directly uh, because of the controversies around the election uh, and also uh, because of EU concerns about uh, Debbie's human rights record and the human rights record of European and French supported military units. So they may have thought that there was a political military opportunity to, to attack. And they kind of took the, they employed the kind of same tactics that, that Chadian rebels have taken over the past 30 years, which is um, travel as fast as you can, as light as you can, as far as you can um, to reach your objective, um, you know, to the desert and hope that you're not detected before you, you attack. Um, the problem was, they were detected pretty early, uh, early on, and uh, what's come out in the past day or so from French sources and French media is the French were providing kind of live, um, uh, real-time intelligence uh, information to Debbie's regime on the movements of this of this group. Uh, and they also provided uh, supplies to Chadian troops that were moving towards the the fact rebels, uh, and may have overflown. Um, uh, rebel columns as well. So it's what's clear France was providing some level of military assistance, which may have been really important uh, because the Chadians themselves don't have drones or satellites or, um, you know, a, a large air force that can continually track movements of these columns to pick up trucks. Uh, so that allowed the Chadian army after a couple setbacks in northern Chad to redeploy about 300 kilometers north of Jamina and, and confront the rebellion. And the um, Chadian government account was that the rebels were defeated uh, in the battle and they were forced to retreat. And the next day, the rebels said that they, although they had uh, won a victory of sorts, they decided on, on a strategic withdrawal while awaiting events. So that does suggest that um, the Chadian government communique was probably accurate um, in the sense that they probably uh, suffered a military setback. Um, now, it was during this fighting uh, at some point between April 19th and April 20th, maybe even a bit earlier, that uh, Debbie uh, was killed. And there are lots of rumors about how he died. The official version is he was in the front line in the pickup truck uh, and was shot through, uh, I guess, the windshield uh, and died of his wounds um, before a helicopter could come and pick him up and medevac him. So that's the official story. Uh, I don't know. There are also rumors that he was killed in a meeting with rebels. Uh, which or or in a meeting with um with with uh, kind of dissident military officers, but like none of that is confirmable. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> all, all, all I can say is that the idea of him dying in the battlefield uh, makes sense. I mean, he has led his troops in battle before. Uh, it's not completely surprising he would be doing it again. Um, but that doesn't mean that is how he died. And I think that it, it, that it, was sort of my we know. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of my take, too. It's the, it has the ring of plausibility, given that he's done this before. Like, he's gone to the front lines and these kind of battles against the rebels. And, I mean, you know, all it takes is a stray shot to hit the right person, and you've got a, a crisis on your hands. On the other hand, uh, the way that story came out, there was so little in the way of detail that the sort of natural thing to do is say there's something else going on here like they're they're not telling the whole story of yeah what happened here so yeah it's it's an interesting uh interesting scenario 
so so there's there's a quasi official version that came out a day or two later with uh, the uh, French language African news uh, source called Jeune Afrique. Uh, it's a magazine, and I mean, they often do these kind of exclusives where which are basically kind of regime whatever country they're working in kind of uh, official accounts from regime insiders or like government <laughs> insiders. And it's like, you know, they're, they're definitely trying to push a line. So it's unclear again, what, what, um, you know, how true it is, but their story is that he uh, kind of last minute decided to, uh, you know, with his aide de camp, they jumped in the pickup truck. He took command of the fighting and yeah, while he was, while he was in his, his truck, he was um, killed by, you know, a stray, uh, a stray shot. Um, doesn't seem like he was, you know, deliberately, at least according to this story, it was, you know, just in the heat of battle. It wasn't, you know, an attempted assassination or anything. Right. Um, right. But again, who knows? He had lots of enemies, uh, you know, inside his own camp as well. Um, so, okay. So let's say the official story has the ring of plausibility and yet it's possible uh, that there's some kind of kind of cover up, but we, we just, can't know we don't know there's no way what we what we do know is that uh very quickly after uh the announcement of debbie's death uh the chadian military effectively uh suspended constitutional order and took power um in any other context uh i think you would obviously refer to this as a coup uh there's been some reluctance to call it that, which, given what the word coup does for, you know, Western governments in terms of aid and, and uh, you know, relationships, uh, I can sort of see why the, they're trying to shy away from that. Uh, but what, what, do, what do we know now about, first of all, what do we know about this new government uh, that's taken power? And what do we know about the man in charge um, Mahamat Idris Debi, uh, the, the son of the uh, now departed president. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's, that's really good questions. Um, there's so I think according to any kind of guess, any definition I'm aware of of a coup, it was a coup <laughs> in the sense that the constitutional order, whether a military regime, a military um, faction took power, dissolved the constitution, dissolved the government, declared a transitional period for 18 months. Uh, before there'd be new elections, um, which is completely, I mean, it literally dissolved the constitution. It's literally uh, an extra constitutional uh, political procedure um, regarding the, you know, the leadership of a country or the you know, ruling the country. So that, um, that to me is, is a coup. What it, it, another way of looking at it though, is that this is pure continuity. I mean, this is probably something that Debbie himself would have wanted to happen if he knew he was going to die in the battlefield, you know, the next day. Um, and you know, maybe he had some kind of provision in place anyway for something along these lines. Um, what is clear is that his son, Muhammad, uh, was, uh, uh, you know, one of his favorites. Uh, you know, he was uh, one of his most trusted advisors. Um, he was, he commanded uh, his presidential guard. He's a four-star general at, you know, age 37 now, but I think when he was age 36, he you know, promoted the four-star general. And there are not many people who get to be a four-star general when you're 36 years old. <laughs> uh, so, you know, at the very least, it's, you know, maybe nepotism, but, but also some degree of trust. And it seems like, uh, from what I've been able to glean from, like, really random places, it seems like he does have some level of respect within the military uh, for, his own, for his own military abilities. He actually commanded chatting troops in Mali um, for a while and has his own kind of, has combat experience of his own. 
and has kind of earned at least some level of respect in that quarter. Um, that doesn't mean by any uh, means that he has the full support of the military. And I didn't go into too much detail before, but the military itself is actually in Chad is actually quite divided between this kind of presidential guard, uh, which is um, uh, the kind of well-trained, well-paid, well-equipped part of the army, and the rest of the army, which is a mix of kind of uh, underpaid recruits uh, there because of different efforts to reduce unemployment, and also co-opted rebels, uh, and um, uh, yeah, I mean various other kind of uh, units that aren't uh, aren't really well armed or trained or actually meant to see combat. Um, but at the same time, this other half of the army has quite a lot of quite a number of high-ranking officers. At least, you know, if they're not paid like quite paid, uh, high-ranking officers or have that level of influence of being a high-ranking officer, uh, they do sort of aspire to that. So you do have a tension with the army about um, who should, um, you know, you know, who should be in charge, perhaps after after Debbie dies. And there are probably elements in the military itself that that would support a civilian transition. Um, which is something we can get into uh, in a second if you want. But uh, it seems like the fact that Muhammad Debbie seized power, um, and again, a lot of people had seen him as be kind of being groomed the past couple of years to be Debbie's successor. Um, although there's there's other people who say that that, that was probably not that might not have been the case. For example, his brother Zakaria claims that he you know he's claiming that he should be the one leading the military council, not Muhammad. So there's a bit of family tension there as well. And the politics of Debbie's family are, are also really fascinating um, and, and, and difficult to uh, really analyze because the information is, you know, uh, never that reliable. But there are a lot of tensions within the, the family itself, which might contribute to you know, instability. Um, but then within the Presidential Guard, uh, which is the other half of the army, you also have a number of uh, generals uh, and high-ranking officers who seem to not be completely on board with this military transition. And last week, there was a statement by one of them uh, that he was supporting a civilian transition. He thought this military transitional council was um, was unconstitutional. Um, we haven't heard anything from him for the past week, so it's unclear how representative his views are. But it does suggest that there's at least some kind of noise in the military that uh, you know it's not a unified bloc behind uh, behind Debbie Jr. So um, yeah, it's unclear where things are going forward. Uh, on Friday, when uh, when last Friday when Debbie's funeral was um, well occurred in Jamina. Uh, Francis president Emmanuel Macron flew into the capital to provide, uh, well, to attend the funeral officially, but unofficially was to provide French endorsement for the regime change. Uh, and according to French sources, uh, Media Part, which is a French independent news magazine or news, uh, news online um, newspaper, uh, the sources they talked to suggested that um, Macron's message to Debbie was, look, we'll, we'll support this, we'll support this transition. Um, you have to add some window dressing in terms of adding a couple civilians here and there. And sure enough, uh, yeah, lo and behold, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't can all be you can't all be special forces generals. You have to have, you know, a mayor or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like it's yeah. Uh, that was but that was basically the message he he told Debbie. And sure enough, the two or three days later he named. Uh, his father's former prime minister as the prime minister of the new transition. Uh, so uh, the extent to which uh, this man, uh, Padaki, has any power is you know, an open question or influence. Um, but he was also uh, a, a loyal supporter of, of Idris Debi uh, for, for many years. So 
Um, we're not talking about radical changes in the makeup of the, of the regime. Now, uh, the French did sort of walk back Macron's strong support where he said, he said in his speech at his funeral that uh, France will never let uh, Chad's stability and territorial integrity uh, be called into question, which was seen by most people as a clear indication that this new regime had, at least in the short term, a French security guarantee, um, which uh, again, adds something to the political dynamics within the country and probably acts as a deterrent to other efforts to kind of, uh, you know, armed efforts to overthrow it. Um, and so the French have kind of walked that back that a bit. They said, well, we don't want this to be a succession. We want it to be a real transition. Uh, it should be civilian. It should be, um, uh, you know, follow, uh, you know, a free and fair process. Um, but they never had, they've never called into question the idea of the military and Mohammed Debbie himself leading this transition and organizing and overseeing the transition process. So uh, if history is anything to go by, this is not going to result in, you know, any kind of uh, representative um, or inclusive uh, polity uh, after the transition ends, if it ends. Uh, one of, the, I mean, one of the reasons that they they sort of walked it back was there were protests, and there were I think five or six people killed um, a few days ago. Uh, protests against the military, yeah, regime. So protests that- against the idea of a monarchical style succession, um, and and that was it. Was after that that the French government kind of said, well you know, uh, we would really like this to be a civilian transition. And uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm wondering here is, um, and there haven't been, I mean, there hasn't been an, a recurrence of, of those kind of violent uh, clashes since then. It was uh, at this point, just a one-off, but given, I mean, what we know of, of France's interests in the Sahel, which uh, stress stability over everything else, in, including, you know, democracy, human rights, all those things. Uh, is there, is there, you know, could there be a point where the existence of this military government and Mohammed's uh, succession creates enough instability that the French government decides it's time to cut bait and, and go a different direction? Yes. Um, so I think if, if if somehow the civilian opposition managed to get lots of gain lots of steam and generate large street demonstrations, um, and you know the regime keeps on discrediting itself through its repression of these demonstrations, and is unable to kind of broaden its um, its uh, membership beyond uh, you know a core group of former regime uh, former Debbie loyalists, then. You know, you may have a situation in which the the French are going to be really embarrassed. Um, I mean, they are kind of already worried. I mean, they're they're already a bit in an embarrassing situation in the sense that, for the, I mean, the first time in a while in France, you start to have a public discussion about this ongoing support for um, not just Debbie, who was clearly authoritarian, but this you know this uh, military transition, which is clearly unconstitutional, uh, and Macron's very overt and open support of this very unconstitutional democratic, uh, anti-democratic or undemocratic transition, um, which, uh, and it's rare to see a lot of kind of criticism in, in, uh, in France itself of France's African policy, at least any kind of criticism that reaches, you know, politically uh, significant levels. So I think there's a bit of an embarrassment there. And I think if, if, the, if the regime is unable to consolidate power in a way that looks nice, and if they can't credibly commit to, um, continuing his father's uh, regional policy of 
providing supplying troops and assistance to uh, efforts against jihadists elsewhere, um, then the French might be willing to look for alternatives. But one thing that they're, I don't know if they're consciously banking on this, but um, it historically, anybody who's taken power in Chad um, has gone to the French for help at some point. Um, and, you know, there's always been a quid pro quo. I mean, there's plenty of instances in the 70s where rebels would be fighting France and two weeks later they would be visiting Paris um, because they were, you know, they were the new leaders of the country. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's um, there's a structural element of that relationship which goes beyond individuals. And, you know, there is a chance the French kind of recognize that more, um, more consciously and would be willing to accept uh, a democratic kind of transition. What is interesting is that the facts, the rebellion we were talking about, um, declared several times publicly that they had no problem with Operation Barkhane, the French, um, French military intervention in the Sahel, which it has its headquarters in Chad, by the way, I forgot to mention that. The headquarters of France's entire military presence in the Sahel is, is in Chad. Um, that they had no problems with Barkhane, they had no problems with France's military operations in the Sahel. They would, uh, they said, Use language that was suggestive that they would continue to support uh, Chad's contribution in these fights against jihadist groups in the Sahel. Basically, screaming like, "Look, France, this isn't about you. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll still be friends with you. Don't right. worry. Just let us get rid of Debbie, um, and everything will be fine." And I should also add that that there's like none of none of Chad's armed groups have actually you know brought democracy and inclusive government to the country. So there's no reason to think that fact would have been much better than Debbie had they taken over, um, you know, had they been successful. So, you know, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to say like, look, uh, you know, the, you know, these guys are opposing an authoritarian regime backed by France and severe kind of neo-colonial relationship. Um, but th there's little indication that they would be much better um, in the long term. Um, so uh, for the average Chadian, I mean, I'm not a Chadian, so it's hard for me to say, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, you know, probably little indication that, um, real change is on the horizon, but probably a lot of fear about what this kind of uncertain transition could bring in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of political uncertainties around it and potential for conflict inside Chad and, and elsewhere. If you had to guess, and you know, we can sort of uh, kind of end the interview on, on this note, I think, if you had to guess, uh, given all these pressures, given um, you know, the hostility that's, that's cropped up, the kind of public opposition to this form of transition, given uh, the rebels, I mean, fact is sort of the last report was they were, you know, stuck fighting in a town that's like 300 kilometers north of uh, N'Djamena. So I, I, don't, I don't think they've made as much progress as they might have let on earlier this month. They, they may not be uh, right. the threat that they might have, but they're not the only potential you know rebel uh, problem for this government uh, given there have been some signs that the entire military may not be on board with this uh, given a, you know you brought up tensions within the Debbie family what are the chances that uh, th this transition survives the 18 months as they've you know as they intended to uh, and comes out the other side with what I assume would be a civilian government with Mohammed Debbie as the new civilian president, quote unquote. 
Um, I assume that's the intention. That would follow, that would follow playbook, yes. That'd yeah. Follow, follow standard playbook. <laughs> um, um, like what, what are the chances of that? And uh, what are the implications uh, for the rest of the region if things don't go so great? And I mean, they've already talked about pulling military forces back, which, uh, yeah. as we've said, affects the G5 force. It affects the, the UN peacekeeping force in Mali. It affects the kind of multinational uh, effort to to deal with Boko Haram and and ISWAP in the Lake Chad region. Uh, what what are the regional implications uh, as well? Right. Well, I think it's. I mean, again, it's, I, I'm a historian, so I'm better at predicting the past and the future. But <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's. How should I put this? So I, I think if the if this follows, if the chat, if the military transition follows kind of uh, you know, the, set, the set playbook, and if they continue to maintain kind of French backing, and if they're, you know, the is political opposite, the civilian political opposition is unable to kind of unify and form a, a a significant enough power block that could, you know, maybe force them into a more uh, democratic dimension, then I think you're just going to see continuity, uh, kind of same as same as for the next couple of years. Um, a, a, a regime in Jamina, which is based on a, a whose main constituency is a small part of a small ethnic group in Chad, um, with uh, some kind of uh, close relationships with others in the country, and uh, a strong military that is the backbone of kind of political power and control, but is still able to project force elsewhere and be a, a valuable ally to not just France, but also the United States, which provides significant military assistance to the Chadian government. Um, so that's, I mean, that would be the, that would be, I guess my, if I was, I was to guess, I would say that's what's going to happen. Um, the Chadian civilian opposition has just been so atomized and, and divided and, uh, co-opted and, um, diff, uh, unable to kind of unify in kind of constructive ways over the past 20 years that it, it seems unlikely they're going to be able to do that now, but then again, I'm actually I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a specialist in Chadian politics, and I don't know the actors as well as I know like the French role, the French side of things. So, it, it would be hard for me to like make a judgment about the way that that side of the equation is actually going to work out. But given history, it seems likely that those guys with the guns are going to be able to be the ones that stay, kind of stay there, um, in one form or another, one hat or another. Whether Debbie is you know becomes a civilian or not is you know maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Um, he probably would, I guess, to maintain appearances. Um, but again, that, that really is speculation. It's hard for me to say. Uh, the French are really concerned that they won't be able to consolidate power. And if they can't consolidate their power uh, in a way that maintains some kind of continuity, then uh, that could bring on conflict in Chad itself, um, perhaps a renewed kind of civil war, which would then probably draw in foreign interveners, you know, a la Libya, but probably including France. So regardless of what goes on, I think it's uh, it's safe to say that France will remain one way or another uh, a key actor in the Chadian scene. All right, so um, that's where things stand. It's still very early to be talking about what what may happen. So uh, I appreciate you kind of offering a little informed guessing as to what may may come down the pike. Um, yeah, I think last... we should be CIA analysts. <laughs> Like, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's too difficult to say. I, I, 
Uh, we should be yeah. making. We should be speculating about. <laughs> Webster's dictionary defines Chad as yeah. Um, so let's uh, with the last couple of minutes here, uh, tell people about your your book and uh, what uh, what you cover in it, and uh, you know what's what's your uh, give give me your sales pitch. Oh, sales pitch, great. So uh, my book is about the French role in Chad in the first two, two and a half decades after its independence in 1960. So I look at uh, two major French military interventions in the country and how they, what well, kind of the, or the, the sources of French, these, these interventions, why the French intervened so often in Chad where they, where they didn't always everywhere else, why Chad itself saw a lot more conflicts and wars than other, uh, other former French colonies, and then the impact that France's interventions had on the politics of Chad and the broader region. Um, and kind of the conclusions I come to are that the, the French kind of fueled the cycle of violence, the cycle of conflict by protecting regimes uh, whose practices were um, inherently destabilizing. So that French policies predicated on uh, stabilization uh, actually provided disincentives to um, various actors and elites whose, um, who would have needed to dilute their authority in order to preserve some kind of regional stability or, or, or stability in Chad. Uh, by having French protection, that removes that incentive. Um, so uh, that provides the opportunity for a number of different Chadian leaders to continue governing in, in very violent and exclusionary ways, which uh, led to or, or continued a cycle of conflict and, and violence. And uh, it's, uh, it ends in 1982 when uh, Chad's, uh, when, when Hissé Habre, the guy I talked about at the beginning of the, the, the interview, took power. Uh, and I, I look at kind of trace how he how he came to power and the French relationship with him, and how they were very well aware before he came to power about what kind of leader he was going to be. Uh, lots of French documents refer to him as being brutal, bloody, um, somebody who was very happy to re resort to torture, uh, murder of his opponents, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, the French kind of had a good idea of what they were getting into, but continued to kind of do it anyway. And my book looks at kind of the whys and how they did this and why the whys they did this and well, I make no sense right now, why they did this, how they did this, and then the impact that these uh, interventions had uh, on Chad itself. Uh, and I, I don't have a particularly positive view on the outcomes of these policies. Wow, really? They've been, it yeah. seems like they've been so effective. <laughs> <laughs> True. The results speak for themselves. All right, Nathaniel um, Powell, again, thank you for uh, coming on the program. Uh, and again, I'll have a, a link to your book in the show description so people can check it out. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure we will uh, have occasion to do this again, uh, depending on how things <laughs> go over the next 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks we'll again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot, Derek. Appreciate it. All right, that does it for us this week. Uh, once again, I want to thank Nathaniel Powell for coming on the program uh, to talk about the passing of Idris Deby and what's happened since then in Chad and uh, speculate a little bit about what might happen moving forward. Uh, that book again uh, is France's Wars in Chad, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa. Uh, I think I said it was published earlier this year uh, i think it actually was published in december so apologize apologies for that my uh 
little copy that I'm looking at says 2021, but uh, online it seems to indicate uh, that I was wrong about that. So apologies, uh, but I'll have a link uh, to purchase the book in the show description if you're interested. Uh, and with that, I'm going to uh, bid you all farewell. As always, until next time, thanks for listening. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.